Welcome back to the Open Source Startup Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures, and I'm joined by Tim Chen, my co-host, who is at Essence VC. And today we have a really awesome guest that we've been excited to chat with for a while. It's Abby Kearns, who has an incredible list of experiences. Most notably, she was the CTO of Puppet, CEO of Cloud Foundry Foundation. She's a super active and selective angel investor in a number of open source companies. And we are thrilled to have her on the podcast. So welcome, Abby. Thank you for having me. And I've been so excited to chat with two of you and two of my favorite people. So this is exciting. (laughs) Awesome. So let's start by maybe going to your first experiences with open source. And this is probably even prior to Cloud Foundry, but like, let's kind of walk through how you first got introduced to the open source business model. I mean, I've known about open source as a business model because I've been in enterprise infrastructure for a little over two decades. So obviously open source has, has been around and part of that ecosystem for some time. But I would say that I got a What's it? Trial by fire is a good way to say it. When I when I joined Cloud Foundry Foundation and got really deep into not just open source but foundations and how they work and kind of the business behind open source and I learned so much in my time there around not just the the way foundations work and IP and asset management. Obviously, all that's important and licensing. But ecosystem, community, maintainers, contributors, really building that momentum and making sure that it's sustainable. And I think that's everything that I learned at Cloud Foundry I have taken with me going forward because, honestly, it's skill sets that apply to any any way that we run businesses and product teams and tech teams. So I think it will be maybe a good introduction because I think people have heard of Cloud Foundry and probably know what it does. But I don't think people are very familiar with the foundation and Pivotal and what sort of relationship is. So maybe kind of break it down, like what is Cloud Foundry Foundation and why do you need a separate foundation for this? It's a very complicated history that even people that were part of it are still a little vague on what was going on at the time. But, you know, to kind of go into the Wayback Machine, Pivotal as we know it now was spun back out of a combination of EMC and VMware. And so Pivotal Labs really came the combination of assets that both of those companies had. So Paul Moritz ended up leaving VMware to take over because his vision, and rightly so, was we're, we're heading into a different way of working. The way we think about technology stacks is going to change, and I'm going to spearhead that with Pivotal. And so Pivotal brought a deep bench of expertise in terms of the way to do Agile and how Agile, Extreme Agile in particular, really needs to work as we think about writing, developing, and managing cloud-native applications. So into the Pivotal creation came Pivotal Labs, but also this open source project that VMware had been incubating called Cloud Foundry alongside Spring, which had been acquired, and uh, Green Plum, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one other thing that was part of this. It was just like a, a bunch of assets and IP that really went into this company. And so in 2013, Pivotal kind of came out fully formed with the idea that there's going to be a platform and a new way of working and writing applications. We didn't really have the term at the time that we, we know today, which is cloud native. So a lot of times we referred to the manifesto that Heroku had written the 12-factor apps is really kind of the way to think about not just architecturally how the infrastructure needs to work, but how the applications need to be written and ran. And so in 2015, Cloud Foundry had really started to come into its own. And IBM in particular and SAP were really excited about the opportunity. And so IBM was starting to use Cloud Foundry then at the time, became their product Bluemix. 
And SAP's cloud application platform was starting to be based on it. And so they really loved the idea of the product and the open source aspects, but they wanted to see it held in a neutral place. And so the point of a foundation is really, think of it as escrow for IP, right? Because once something goes into an open source software foundation, it can never be transferred to a for-profit company. So someone can't get upset and kind of take their toys and go home one day. It's all held in a neutral location. And so what that really does is allow you to both centralize the assets and IP management, but also start to build that momentum and that community around it. And so what was seeded with the work that VMware and Pivotal had done with Cloud Foundry, but aided by IBM and SAP, soon really grew quickly to bring on a lot of other players like SUSE and Swisscom. And I'm trying to think of the early days, but you know we had... It, Peak time, we had 55 different members. We had over 6,000 contributors really working on Cloud Foundry. And it really kind of took a life on its own. And so by moving that into an open source software foundation, you gave it the freedom to operate and run and kind of grow outside of Pivotal. And so Pivotal Cloud Foundry became one of our downstream distributions, much like IBM's Bluemix, SAP's Cloud Platform, Suse's um, cloud platform, it just, it they allowed them to kind of have the freedom on the product side to build their own downstream applications. But the foundation really gives you the freedom to kind of have that neutral party and that neutral guidance over where the technology flows, but where the community and the ecosystem evolves. No, I think it's really helpful. And I think like one piece that might be helpful for you to touch on is how different projects and companies behind those projects should operate and think about like the CNCF or Cloud Foundry, because we'll hear from companies frequently that, okay, like we really want our project to be part of the CNCF. And like, why is that important for projects to be like part of a foundation or kind of like run in this more independent way? There's a couple of reasons why you would want to have a project in that ecosystem or in that foundation. First, stepping back a bit, and when you think about open source for a company, you know, when a startup talks to me, they say, I want to, you know, I want to open source this. I, my first question is why? What do you hope to get out of? Because there's a lot of positive reasons you can open source something, but for every positive, there is an equal and opposite negative reason too. So you really need to think through both the advantages, but also the risks that come with it. The advantages are it gives you the ability to create an accelerated ecosystem around a technology. So CNCF was the one everyone knows of right now. And it's got a built-in ecosystem. It's got a built-in community of people that are passionate about cloud-native technologies. And it's really built momentum around having those projects as part of that. And if you want to be part of that ecosystem and you really want to show up and have that grassroots momentum and that access to that ecosystem, that's a great and easy way to do that. The downsides are, obviously, you're giving up your IP. That is no longer your IP. Once you contribute to a foundation, it is theirs. So if I'm trying to build a commercial product, I have to think a lot about what does that mean for my business? What am I trying to build a business around? Because it's no longer that technology. So I have to think about how I'm going to leverage that as an asset to what I want to build. But at the end of the day, I don't get to control the roadmap. I don't get to control who gets to contribute to it. You know, that's now part of a bigger ecosystem. And so that's something you just have to kind of weigh the pros and cons of. Sometimes it makes complete sense. And sometimes it can be, you know, a bit of a negative drag on the business as you try to figure out how to build your business around that. And so it's just something you need to weigh really thoughtfully and intentionally. But, you know, if you think about 
if you have a broader enough product portfolio and you're able to contribute aspects to it, it's a great way to build credibility in the developer community. It's a great way to, to kind of bring access to your project to the cloud native community in a quick way and truly really start to tap into that ecosystem that's evolving really quickly around how do we build, run, and manage cloud native projects. But the one thing that I, I used to say a lot at Cloud Foundry, and I still say it a lot today to companies, project and product are not the same thing. And that's a hard thing for a lot of people to remember, but those are very, very different things. Project is what is in the open source and it's driven by the community. Product is what you're building and selling to a customer. And those can be related, but they are definitely not the same thing. And the same strategy should not be applied to both. Yeah, I was actually part of the original team where Mark Lukowski was leading the engineering team working on Cloud Foundry back in the day. And so I still remember sort of the original story and the team and the vision before Pivotal. <laughs> and I'm very curious because I think even though I was part of that early team, I think I saw the open source grow, but it didn't really grow that crazy. Definitely once the Pivotal thing came out, I think the growth starts to happen a lot more of it. And I'm, I'm very curious from your point of view, what was like the biggest factors that allow Cloud Foundry to actually grow, both from a contributor and adoption side? Because I think it's not, I don't think there's like a very typical open source growth pattern we've seen in the past. A lot of larger companies' open source projects don't really get widely adopted, generally speaking, in this way. What do you think contributes to the success of Cloud Foundry that allows it to have a pretty large enterprise footprint? It's not your hobbyist of any means. I'm just curious, what do you think the lessons are? There's so many lessons. I think we should have a podcast on lessons learned from, from that journey. <laughs> I think that's a whole other topic. But I do say that, um, you know, Cloud Foundry, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It, it wasn't a hobbyist platform. This isn't something you were going to spin up at home. You know, it required a massive amount of VMs to deploy it. It was really architected. And if you were there in the early days, it was really architected day one to solve and run the most complex level of applications in the biggest environments. Like this was a architected from day one to be an at scale platform, which is very different. You know, it's not the ideal platform if you're going to run two web apps. Like that's not, you don't run those on Cloud Foundry. Could you? You could, yes, but it's a little bit overkill. So, you know, it was really architected. And so what it really ended up bringing was, you know, the largest organizations to be part of that community. You know, for us, we got... We were able to bring in enterprise users in a way that a lot of open source communities hadn't been able to do earlier. We had, you know, really active in our community, open source users like Comcast. They were very active in the community, showed up at all the events and, and were really participatory. Home Depot, Wells Fargo. We had a lot of these, these companies that didn't normally participate in open source showing up. They were at our conferences. They spoke at our customer advisory boards, they were active in, in a feedback and PRs. Like it was just, it was a different way because they were really engaged in trying to figure out how to solve their hardest problems, which is how to write, build, and run cloud native applications at scale. And, and at the time, and this is back in 2016, 2017, companies were really struggling with their digital transformation efforts. And if I'm an enterprise you know, I'm trying to figure out all of this at one time, not just what is a microservice and what is a container, but running these things at scale across a cloud or two and migrating from my data center. And oh, by the way, how do we do CICD well? And how do we do this at scale? And, and so it really kind of hit at the same time, all of this other transformation work was happening. And so it really was an exciting time for us at the foundation to be able to spend time 
with the teams that were building and running these platforms around the world and see how they were thinking about the future. And honestly, I still think it was one of the best jobs I ever had because it gave me insight and visibility in a way that I would not have gotten any other way, which is how do companies think about the work they're doing? What are they trying to solve? And what role is cloud and cloud native going to have in their future? It's interesting what you said earlier about project market fit and product market fit being very different things. When you were at Cloud Foundry, it almost seems like you could focus almost solely on the project piece, on project market fit and pushing the project out. And like one of the things that I think companies struggle with, open source companies, is figuring out how much to focus on pushing their product market fit, their paid product versus their project market fit. And then, of course, the two are tied with the foundation. Like, is it right to say that it was really about push it like Cloud Foundry, the project, and it wasn't as much about anything product wise? And I know it was more unique in a, in a way than maybe some other foundations, but I would just love your thoughts on like what, what the goals of foundations usually are. The goal of a foundation is to drive a sustainable community and ecosystem around the open source project, full stop. A lot of that you see is largely marketing. It's events, it's conferences, it's hackathons, it's bringing teams together to, to really figure out. It's driving engagement around contributors and committers and maintainers, and it's really shepherding the direction of that open source project. So, you know, when you're in open source, you are myopically focused on where are we going to go with this open source technology? Now, the flip side of that is I did spend a fair bit of time working with companies to figure out what their product strategy was and how we would really keep those things sort of going in the same direction. Because again, they're not the same thing. A product strategy is vastly different from a project strategy. And they should be because you're solving different problems. You know, it's like saying Pivotal Cloud Foundry's solution was very different from what SAP was trying to do. They were using the same core open source project, but their go-to-market, their productization, all of that was vastly different. And that was intentional. And you should have that flexibility in your open source technology. And the role on the open source side was to really make sure that we had clarity of purpose and where we were going with the technology and keeping people aligned and transparent. And then really driving that engagement in the contributor and the maintainer community to continue to do that development work. But when you're running an open source software foundation, you're focused on just the open source. Everything else is kind of out. And now if I'm a company and I've open sourced something, and maybe it's not in a foundation, maybe I've just put it up on GitHub, that's a different question because you have to say, what value do I want to get out of open source? You know, because is it, is it a marketing channel? Is it a community channel? Is it a way to do access developers in terms of a grassroots kind of way, what are you hoping to leverage with it? Because there's no magic there. It requires investment. If you're trying to get a community out of it, you have to invest in community. If you're trying to drive awareness through it, it ha you have to still market it. If, you have, if you're wanting to leverage it in a way to build part of your channel or marketing funnel, you've got to invest in that as well. And so you really have to be thoughtful about what you want to do and invest in it accordingly because there's no magic there. There's no secret sauce that all of a sudden it unlocks a tremendous amount of value because I posted it up on GitHub under an Apache 2 license and voila, I'm done. You really have to say, okay, what am I going to get out of this and how am I going to leverage this for my product strategy? And I think this might be a tough question, but um, you know, just being part of Cloud Foundry early days, I think one thing I also really appreciated how we even talked about the project and also architecting that system, we were definitely building that sort of ready for the future in some way, right? It was 
you know, Nats was was pretty good, amazing. DEAs, Warden, all this sort of stuff. And a team was definitely came from the Google blood and all of that things. So I'm very, very memorable experiences for me. But I felt like collectively, it feels like Cloud Foundry could have been much, much more bigger. <laughs> it is definitely a portable system, not locked into any cloud. I think that message all resonated for a lot of ecosystem enterprises. What do you think is the biggest lessons beyond just the growth? Because I feel like Cloud Foundry certainly has a lot of adoption, but it seems to also wasn't able to penetrate just like Kubernetes. You know, Kubernetes really took over everywhere, every every place. It may not designed to be. I'm just curious what your thoughts of penetration-wise, because the visual vision was everybody should just use Cloud Foundry. Everybody should just, you know, use it as a target pass. It seemed to kind of work for large enterprises, but didn't really go beyond certain segments. What do you think was like the biggest challenge of actually Cloud Foundry continuing to gain wide adoption? Well, there's a lot, but I'd say there's a couple of key areas that I took away and then I still use as guidance today. And I think it's something everyone should learn from it, which is one, it was architected for a future we weren't in yet. When Cloud Foundry was really launched, this is 2013, 2014, you know, when it was really starting to gain traction, majority of organizations weren't thinking about container-based development. Majority of organizations weren't thinking about microservices or serverless. They were dealing with monolithic applications. And so we were introducing a product for a group of users that weren't really sure what adoption meant. And I want to unpack that for a bit because I think there's a lot of lessons here for startups as well. Is When you've got a new product, yeah, it's great and it solves a lot of important problems, but the ask of your customer is significant, you should really dig into that. If I'm expecting my customer to adopt this platform, and as part of that adoption, they have to change the way their organization is structured, implement an entirely new culture, change the way they work, hire new types of people, motivate those people in very different ways, both financially and objectively, then you have to really factor that into the adoption cycle. Because our you know, Cloud Foundry solved so many things. It was architected, like I said, to run amazing applications at scale flawlessly. Uptime, resilience were unmatched and still remain unmatched. You know, Cloud Foundry was architected solidly. There's no one that can dispute that, but it asked so much of the, the buyer. It asked them to change the way they worked, change the way they deployed, change the way they write applications. And that takes time. And were there people willing and wanting to do that? Absolutely. But most of the early users, and I think this is true today, still of even cloud native users, is they weren't quite ready for what else it entailed. And I think that's something you have to take into consideration when you're on the bleeding edge of technology, is what is my ask of my customer? How much of the work am I putting on them to adopt this? So what's that? What's that switching cost? And secondarily, you know, the learning curve for Cloud Foundry was really, really steep. Bosch, which was a core part of the platform orchestration, was amazing. If you if you learned it, you were obsessed. It solved all of your problems. It could make toast. It could make coffee. You could do whatever you wanted it to do. But the learning curve was so steep. And for many customers, they just weren't willing to put in that work. And so when you combine the, the learning curve and the expectation on the customers, when something else comes along that's a little smaller, it's a little easier, I can make it fit into my existing workflow. Yeah, it doesn't solve the problems I think I wanted to solve, but you know what? It's kind of good enough and it kind of works with what I know. That's going to win every time. 
I think it's such an important point around the learning curve and the amount of effort that it'll take, regardless of how powerful technology is going to end up being. I want to make sure that we have time to talk through some of your other experiences, because after Cloud Foundry, you went to Puppet to be CTO. And it's a very interesting space. There's a lot of infrastructure as code companies. So maybe we can just start by unpacking, like, how is Puppet position versus Ansible, Terraform, Chef, like everything else that existed at the, and came out around that time? Well, Puppet was a was the first that was in the space to really think about infrastructure as code. And it was quickly followed by Chef and later by SaltStack and Ansible. And, you know, and even HashiCorp was really built on the core tenants, which is we recognize that infrastructure is now something we're going to program and manage in a very automated fashion. And so it's really opened the doors. And I think Puppet did a great job of really describing what DevOps actually means. What does it actually mean to think about the combination of these skill sets and the capabilities? And how do I want to drive automation into my environment? And so Puppet had tremendous amount of traction in the enterprise we were, if you include the open source aspects of Puppet, we were in 85% of the global 5,000. So Puppet is, was everywhere and it's used by a lot of people. And, and it really became a staple for many companies, the way they ran and managed their infrastructure. And it gave a lot of power to those teams that were running them to figure out how am I going to manage these things at scale? Because the tale that's been old is time, which is I don't have enough people and enough time and enough money. So you know, many, many teams were trying to figure that out. And Puppet and even Chef and SaltStack and Ansible really helped them address that because what am I going to do if I've got a team of three or four or five people and now I'm not managing a team of 20 servers, I'm managing, you know, I'm managing 150 across multiple data centers. And oh, there's some cloud thrown in now. And, you know, the landscape has gotten way more complex for these teams that are building and running these environments. And I think it's, I think these tools allowed them to change the game. But going back to where we were before, it really helped us baby step our way to where we are today, which is thinking about greater and greater degrees of automation. And I think it really allowed companies to start to think about what does automation look like for me? And I think that's, we talk about it very casually here in particularly in the Valley automation, but it's still something that's scary for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it definitely should be a very exciting and probably not a simple learning curve for you to jump from Cloud Foundry to Puppets. <laughs> I think the role seems quite different. So maybe talk about some of that transition. What was the things you had to learn that's something you never thought of or you didn't thought it was uh, something that you were super easy, well-prepared for, that, okay, definitely took a little bit of a learning curve to acquire Jumping from that cloud foundry role into the puppet CTO, I think a lot of um, a lot of I, I actually I meant what I said about running an open source software foundation. I took a lot of those learnings with me, which is how do people want to participate, and this applies in a community as well as in an organization. Big things are clarity of purpose. Where are we going and why? Another one is transparency. What are we working on and why? I'm a big believer in really decentralized teams and driving agile um, in that way, and so allowing people to operate as autonomously as possible and quickly as possible. How do we optimize for speed and innovation and giving people more freedom? And, and those are things that I brought with me in terms of my leadership style, but those are things I also learned in the open source community because that's what works, right? If you're wanting to build a, a team of contributors and maintainers, you want them to have the autonomy. You want to give them as much transparency, but also clarity of where we want to go and why. And I think those are things that I took with me and applied at Puppet, 
there was a lot of uh, fun times at Puppet. We had a great team. Um, so at a CTO, I was responsible for the product and the technology strategy, but I also ran the product design, engineering, and security teams. And so, you know, it was a fun learning curve of really working with the different teams and the people and figuring out how we were going to really both think about where we were today as Puppet, but also where did we want to be in the next five years as we thought about the changing landscape. Puppet had done an amazing job through Puppet Enterprise of really tackling that automation inside the data center, but how are we going to tackle cloud native? And what did that mean? And so it gave us a chance to do a lot of experimentation with SaaS products, expanding our portfolio, and really figuring out how to bring innovation back to the organization. So when you joined Puppet, the company had been around for quite a while at that point. And so I imagine that the focus was probably a lot more on monetization at the point when you joined. And I'd love to maybe talk through at scale what some of like your learnings were around monetization and like just kind of the state that Puppet was at. Because I think one of the things that I know I've taken away from a lot of the podcast episodes we've done is just, especially for the last couple generations of open source based companies, how long the projects were actually in market before they were pushed to monetize. So just what were some of the learnings um, monetizing at Puppet and kind of what was the, what were the main company focuses when you joined in 2020? Well, monetization was, yes, a big a big point of us. Revenue growth and uh, as a venture-backed company, what do you need to focus on? Revenue growth year over year, right? And so that's, you know, you have a, a very strong focus on, on monetization. But a lot of the learnings I took away that I still share with a lot of founders is back to where we started, which is what are you open sourcing and why? Because when you, and this is the same challenge that I saw with Cloud Foundry too, is when you've had a really fantastic open source project and a technology that's sort of fully functional, the conversation to convert that user to a buyer is difficult. Sometimes the first or second year is actually pretty easy because they're like, hey, you know, you've got natively integrated services and support and all these things that I need right now. But then a year or two in, that value proposition line changes and it's no longer enough to have those things. And having seen this both firsthand, both on the Cloud Foundry side and the Puppet side, but also kind of watching our participants in the ecosystem and how it worked, that value line moves really, really quickly. It moves way faster than anyone thinks. And it changes year over year. And so you may get a bunch of customers that first year. You may see those revenue growth up and to the right. All that, that nice little J curve we all like to see in Dex. But what happens though is year two and year three, that conversation gets harder. And you start seeing churn and you start seeing customers that are like, you know what? I love the technology, but I'm just like, I just don't know if I want to pay $10,000, $20,000 or even as they're bigger and bigger customers, a million dollars. And that becomes a very different conversation. And so when you think about the trajectory you're on, you're like, okay, do I want to have this conversation every year? Do I want to have to rebuild to my customer my value prop as a company? Because it's no longer a technological conversation at that point. It's a value prop in you and your company and your direction. And that narrow line of innovation that you can derive value from gets smaller and smaller every year. And eventually, your biggest competitor is your open source self. And sometimes that's a really, really hard conversation to have, which is why I'm always like, okay, why do you want to open source and what are you going to do with that? Because if you've got a fantastic open source project that everyone loves, everyone assumes that's my TAM. If I'm going to turn this into a commercial product, that's my TAM. That's not your TAM. That's a user base. Some of them may convert to buyers, but that is not your TAM. 
And I don't know that enough people sit down and think about that because that that is not necessarily a proven case that those people are going to convert to become paying buyers. Yeah, we had Adam Jacobs on, I think, on the podcast before. And uh, he and I have very similar opinions on this. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to start an open source company anytime soon or anymore. Uh, you know, that's called how he start express his point of view right away. And I, I'm very curious about your experience because Cloud Foundry is, like you said, living actually in the future, maybe too early. Where Puppet, I think, as an open source project is widely adopted but not widely adopted to the cloud future yet. Because I think when I was reading your interviews and your announcements to join the pub as CTO, sounds like the biggest focus point is how do you create an evolutionary strategy? So pub is, is, doesn't lose its magic. I think that's what you mentioned. Still keep its core, but continue to start becoming more cloud native for folks transitioning to the cloud. And it's such a, big change of <laughs> style. And do you think you're able to achieve what you wanted to achieve in that journey? What was the sort of the biggest lessons you took away that you learned during and after that journey? Because I think going into that, I'm sure there's a lot of like, okay, there's a lot of things to figure out, right? And there's, there's some setup, but I'm sure there's a lot more learnings after the fact. Now you went through that journey. I just, I'm just very curious what's your take on trying to take an existing popular open source project and trying to do an evolutionary strategy here. I'm not sure open source actually helped or didn't help. So just curious, what's your take on that journey? Biggest lessons and challenges you had to face? It was a challenge because it's it's a fundamentally, you're revisiting the core value and vision of a product. And anytime you're doing that, it's a very, very difficult process. Um, because Puppet, Puppet had other products, but at the end of the day, its biggest revenue driver and our biggest used product was Puppet Enterprise. And that was really the flagship product. And that's really what brought people in the door. And when I joined Puppet, I joined Puppet because Puppet Enterprise is a fantastic product. It's stable. I was blown away by how few escalations and service tickets we actually had on the product, considering how widely deployed it was. If people used it, they loved it. They had no problems with it. It was fantastic. And I was like, okay, we have a great customer base. We have a great product that's stable, fantastic core technology, a great team of people around it. Okay, how hard could this be, right? I have endless bounds of optimism at all times about these sorts of things. I was like, this would be, this would be easy, easy peasy. But one of the things that I, I'd say I probably didn't think long enough and hard enough about is as we thought about what we we're going to do, which is really going after that cloud native stack, we were going to have to deliver a product in a different way. Puppet Enterprise was fantastic, but it was also a pretty big product to deploy. There was no on-ramp. You were either on it or you were off it. It was like much platforms. You were either using it or you weren't. There wasn't a way to just increment your way up. And there was a lot of fantastic aspects of Puppet that we didn't actually even productize or monetize. Like the amount of data we had that we collected through the product, we weren't actually doing anything with that. So my thought was, okay, what's some low-hanging fruit? How do we, we've got a great tech stack here. How do we start to separate the tech stack out a little bit? We replatformed a lot of it on cloud native stacks, put in some Kubernetes, of course. Quick shout out to our dear friends at Replicated for their help on that journey. And 
I said, okay, how do we pull some of this functionality out and just kind of deliver it as a SaaS-based product so customers could kind of increment their way up to this level of automation and also drive that experience across um, not just the data center, but across multi-cloud. And that's really the journey we went on and at a really, really fast sprint, which is say, okay, we're going to build some SaaS-based applications, but you have to unpack that. Okay, what does it mean to move from operating on a largely monolithic application sprint and backlog management to now all of a sudden we're managing multiple SaaS products? What does that look like? And so there's culture change, org change, different ways of working, different ways of thinking about innovation sprints, different sprint planning cycles that sort of thing. So we had to do a lot of that culture work behind the scenes. And keep in mind, we were doing this all during the height of the pandemic, which added another layer of complexity to the whole thing. And, you know, that took a lot longer than I I, I kind of honestly thought it would. I thought it would be something that would be pretty quick turn. And that took a little bit longer to kind of shift the organization to operate in a new way. So lesson learned there. It's going to take longer than you think. But the team actually did amazing. And for me, it's always about the surprise of people that just show up and really surprise you and are able to shift. And, you know, I was able to to bring together a leadership team underneath me that, you know, without them, I wouldn't have done any of it. And they were all amazing in their own rights. And, you know, I think that sort of thing allows you to, when you have a great team around you, allows you to really see that success happen in a much faster pace and, and really kind of I don't know. It was just, I think the people honestly made it for me and they they really allowed us to, to make that transition. And so now you have this incredible foundry experience, been at one of the leading infrastructures, code open source companies, and you're now actively angel investing and advising. And I know there are some open source companies in there. So I guess first question when it comes to your angel investing and advising, do you find that you almost have a higher bar for open source companies because you you see how hard it can be? And like, what do you look for with open source, potential open source investments in general? Oh, I'm sure you and Tim can attest to this. Anytime you have deep expertise in something, the bar is way high. Like it, I need to be really impressed with what you've got. It's like, that's, it's just, if you say you have, like, even now we were joking about this before. If you say you have a platform, I oh, tell me more. We're going to double click on this a bit because I want to know exactly what you've got. And and so, yes, when you say I want to open source something, that bar is really, really high for me because I then I want to hear, okay, well, tell me about your community strategy. I want to hear your ecosystem strategy. What's your go-to-market strategy? How are you going to monetize this? I want to hear all of that day one because it is not easy. Like you're, it, You don't just take a great open source project and flip the switch and all of a sudden now people are going to come and give you money. That's not how it works. And so for me, I want to hear all of those details. And if you're not thinking about that now, I don't know how you're going to be successful. But that's just, I know there are a lot of people who don't agree with my, my stance. So I will say, <laughs> I will say that is not a wildly held belief, but that's my personal belief. But I think there is a lot of companies that are doing it well and taking the open source opportunity and building that into something pretty special. I've been blown away by some people that have been able to navigate it. But I know Adam Jacob is much more eloquent about this sometimes than I am. And he and I riff about this a lot. But it it really comes back to, for me, do you have clarity of purpose? Like, what are you building and why? And if you cannot tell me that, then I don't understand why you're you're building anything. That's really, really tough, for sure, as a startup to have really good clarity of all of that, especially ecosystem. I think that's definitely probably one of those things that you don't really expect. But 
what does Clarity look like for you? What is an open source company at a startup's, let's say pre CNC stage, may just have a project? What do you hope to see? Because I think we'll give some sense to folks when, especially as a founder, most founders always think they have already. <laughs> Depends on what kind of founder you are. Some people think they have nothing. Some people have, they have everything, right? And so it typically doesn't fall too much in between. And uh, I think for the folks, what is a good looks like when it comes to having some sense of what an open source strategy looks like? I mean, at the very basic, why do you want to open source something? What does it mean to you? And I think if you can't answer that, then you're going to have a really hard time building a company around that. And the answer can't be because people like this open source project. Like that's not a good answer. I need to understand why. Why do you think you can build a company around this? And maybe you don't have ecosystem strategy and, and a lot of Early stage pre-seed don't, but hey, tell me you're thinking about it. Tell me you at least you understand that that exists out there and I need to have awareness of it. Tell me you're thinking about what does community mean to me? Is it important? Is it not? And if it's not, that's fine. Just be really open about what that value prop is for you. And then say, okay, tell me about how you're going to manage roadmap. You've now open sourced this one. Are you going to accept all pull requests? Are you not? Are you going to let people shift your roadmap? Are you not? Like, I think just really saying, being very clear about what you're going to do with that and how you're going to leverage that. And I, you don't have to have all of the answers, but I do want to hear that you're thinking through those things and you're really trying to figure them out along the way. Because at that stage, you're not going to have all the answers. You don't have product market fit. But if you're building a company, I really want, and maybe maybe I'm just too naive and you can tell me, Abby, you're a little Pollyannish about this, but like I want to hear that there's a purpose behind the company. What are you trying to do here? What problem are you trying to solve? And an open source project isn't a problem. It is a technology solution. What problem do you want to solve and how are you going to leverage technology to solve it? This is such a good point because, and I know Tim probably sees this all the time too, the number of founders that open source just gets thrown in as a strategy because it's what developers want to see. And then that is the extent of it is it happens more often than we'd like. I think the last question that we want to end on is because you're an advisor to so many founders, open source and and some not, like what ends up being the key area or areas that you advise on repeatedly, like having seen companies at scale where you're like, this is just, these are just some of the common Area, especially for first-time founders that end up getting overlooked? I think, and maybe this is just a reflection of the ecosystem that I live in and enterprise infrastructure, but I think a lot of people get overweighted on the tech and the product and then don't think about going back to what are we building and why. I'm guilty of this as well, so trust me. I've been there, but I think really sitting down and thinking through what problem do I want to solve and why does anyone care? And that's, I know it seems really simplistic, but it's a thing you should be able to articulate off the top of your head. Why am I building this and why do people care? Because being in now mid-2023, the macroeconomic headwinds are pretty significant. For those of us dealing with the enterprise, the enterprise buyer is getting more intentional, a little pickier. The hurdles to get in front of them as design partners and proof of concepts is getting higher and higher and higher. And there's a lot of companies out there also vying for that same ICP. So how are you going to stand out? If you sound like 75 other startups, no one's going to understand what you do. So walk me through the value you're going to provide. And also, how quickly are you going to provide value in that solution? Because again, going back to if the work is all on the customer to sort that out, you're going to have a hard time getting them there. Yeah, it's such a simple question, but 
the answers, the quality that answered really differs a lot when it comes to talking to founders. So, which is, I, I can understand why you're saying this because it is very hard. It's very hard to have a really good answer. I think that's why sometimes people need to actually see what good looks like for a lot of these things as well. But you definitely get inspired and that inspiration allows you to also hire really good teams. Uh, so I, I know that's, it really, really matters. But this is really, really great. I think both Robbie and I, and I'm sure lots of others will learn so much out of your journey. And I guess also probably do a shout out for you if you're looking for angel investing or advising board members, Abby is one of the must you got to talk to, especially on open source and infrastructure. So thank you so much. It was a fantastic time and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure.